2 Timothy chapter 4. These are the last words that Paul would give to preachers. If there is a title to my talk tonight, it would be Paul's Last Word to Preachers. Over half of you graduates will be preachers. And this word is primarily to you. Others can eavesdrop, but this is mainly to you. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared. Be instant, in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come. Sadly, that time has come. When men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of preachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. I will point out that Paul now gives these famous words and showing how he has finished well. It's my desire to finish well. But he could say, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to fall upon every mind in this place, that their perception of what I say will be understood and applied as you intend. And upon my tongue, my heart, that I might be cleansed to be your transparent instrument to say everything that needs to be said in these brief moments, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Let this be a life-changing word. Could it be, Lord, there's someone here as I speak that were they to die now would be eternally lost. So I pray that this will be an evening that will change someone's destiny. Let me be simple, clear, 
and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. Do you want to make an impact on your generation? That's the question. Do you? I had a thought about 20 minutes ago. Might have been 15 minutes ago. I asked myself, since this is Paul's last word to preachers, what if this were my last word ever to be uttered in this place? I don't think it is the last word, so I'm not making any prediction, no innuendo, but what I want to do is speak to you as if I would never speak again and that I had just some 30 minutes or so to give this word to you people who are graduating and to anybody who knows they've been called into the ministry. Now, as far as we know, to Timothy is Paul's last letter before he was beheaded in Rome sometime around 65 A.D. Among other things were his last instructions to his beloved Timothy regarding what it is to be a minister of Jesus Christ. And so he uses the word, I give you this charge. So I want to say four things about the charge Paul gives to Timothy, this being his last word to preachers. The first thing to be said is we're talking about a solemn charge. How solemn? Well, listen. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, I give you this charge. The reason I know it's so solemn is that Paul here speaks out of what we've learned to call oath-level authority. Let me put it this way. All of God's Word is true. It's all inspired, equally inspired. But once in a while, even in Scripture, the writer will elevate what he's saying to get special attention. Take Jesus. We know everything he said is true. Everything he said is true. But once in a while, he would say, truly, I say unto you. We may say, well, what has it been up to now? Was it not truly? No. He's always speaking the truth. But once in a while, he would say, verily, verily, as he put in the authorized version, truly, truly. It's Jesus' word of elevating his words to the oath level. That means we're talking about something very solemn indeed. And that's what he said, Jesus, about the need to be born again. When he gave this word, the need to be born again, it was prefaced with these words, truly, truly. I ask this question. To anybody here tonight, have you been born again? Well now, how do we know this was a solemn charge? There is certain language that you find in Scripture that just lets you know that the speaker is saying something that is not just ordinary. 
Take, for example, when Elijah appeared to Ahab, the king. Here were his words. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except my word. When Elijah says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, that is Elijah speaking at the level of the oath. How did Elijah know that it wouldn't rain? What is the result of a man who can talk like this and say, it's not going to rain? Do you think Elijah the next day or two began to bite his nails and think, every time I see a cloud in the sky, oh, maybe my prophecy is not going to be true. Imagine saying this to the king. It's not going to rain until I say so. But he said it with this oath-level language, and he knew what he was saying was true. That is what Paul does. In this, his final word to preachers, in the presence of God and of Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. It was a solemn charge to speak like this. It's a no-joke thing. He speaks with the gravest and highest level of authority anyone ever can speak. Well, in it, he actually refers to the final judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ. You can go to Corinth today in Greece and uh, see the ancient Bema seat. It's where rewards or punishments were given out, and it was always public. Well, Paul has taught that we will stand before the Bema seat. That's the literal word translated judgment seat. And he's letting us know that we will all stand before him. There have been two times in American church history when there was oath-level power in the preaching. There may have been more, but I know of two. One was in 1741 in a place called Enfield, Connecticut, where Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And when he finished preaching, people were literally holding on to church pews to keep from slipping into hell. Men were seen outside holding on to tree trunks to keep from slipping into hell. Word spread all over New England in days. It spread to England in weeks. The world never forgot it. Jonathan Edwards preached the same sermon two weeks later. Nothing happened. Lest anyone think that people were just emotional. It wasn't anything like that. God only did it once, just to give one a taste of the fact that we're going to face God in the final judgment. And in those words, Jonathan Edwards said, it is by the very mercy of God that you're not in hell right now. Now, if we were to say that today, most people would laugh us to scorn. But there was a moment when God just owned the sermon. And it was a no-joke thing. It only happened once. Just to give a person a taste. The other 
was when in 1801, the beginning of what is called the camp meeting phenomena in America, thousands came from five states in their covered wagons to Bourbon County, Kentucky, and to an area called Cane Ridge. They came for Bible study and fellowship. That's why they came. One July morning, a Methodist lay preacher stood on the top of a fallen tree, and he took his text from the words, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. 15,000 people were gathered around him. As he spoke, they began to fall to the ground. Nobody was praying for them. Nobody pushed them. They just fell. What caused it? The awesomeness of the judgment. It was so fearful. It was so scary. People just fell out in fear. For the next four days, there was never a time when there were fewer than 500 people on the ground. They came out of it shouting, and it has been called America's Second Great Awakening. I said this morning in the church here, I would love, before I die, just once, just once, to have that kind of power. Because if I had that kind of power, I wouldn't have to persuade you, lead you, explain to you how real all this is. You would know it. You'd be on your knees. In the first graduating class of the Salvation Army, William Booth started out his address with these words. Brothers and sisters, perhaps I should apologize to you for keeping you here for two years just to teach you how to lead a soul to Jesus Christ. Far better if you could have spent five minutes in hell, and then we wouldn't have to teach you. What Paul is saying in his final words, introducing these words by saying, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, I give you this charge, because we're talking about something that points to the fact everybody's going to die. And after death, the judgment. Every one of us will stand before God. I may not convince you that this is true, but you'll believe it when you see it, except then it will be too late. The only way to know how your case will be handled is to settle out of court, as it were, before we get there. And that is something that you can do tonight before I finished. Well, this is also a reference to the second coming of Jesus. I believe, not only in the second coming, but would you believe me if I told you, I think it's coming very, very soon. I don't say I will be alive at the time. Wouldn't be surprised. And I happen to believe the next thing to happen on God's calendar is an awakening just before the second coming. You might like to know, if you didn't know, that the Elam Pentecostal Church is founded on four principles. 
It's been called the Four Square Gospel Church. In America, it's called Four Square Gospel. Over here, it's Elam. But you know what the four points are? Savior, healer, baptizer, and soon-coming king. Not just coming king, soon-coming king. For the founders of this movement, which has been going on for 100 years, believed Jesus was coming soon. There are those who don't think he's coming at all, much less that he's coming soon. We must never lose that sight. It is a healthy church that expects Jesus to come anytime. All right, solemn charge. Second, it was a stipulated charge because Paul says, I give you this charge, preach the word. What is it you've got to say when you talk to people? Well, he tells you, preach the word. Why? Well, the time will come when people will not want the word, but they want to hear smooth things. Tell us things we like to hear. Uh, there is in America, I won't mention names, wouldn't be ethical to do that, but you can see him on TV almost any time you turn on the TV set. He preaches to tens of thousands, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 45,000. And he begins by saying, this is my Bible, I will do what it says, and by talking like that, he gets the attention of people who, oh, he believes the Bible, oh, well, then it's not too bad, is it? But when you read what he's got, or when you listen to what he's got to say, you find out that he's playing into what people hope is true. He won't take a stand on any issue you never hear him preach against sin. He never talks about hell. It's always, don't worry, things are going to be fine. And people love it. When we lived in Florida, a lovely couple across the street from us, I tried to get him to come and hear me preach, and he came one or two times, but he said, R.T., we like to stay in our own living room and hear this preacher because here we can drink our martinis and smoke our cigarettes, and the thing is, he makes us feel so good. And the implication was, R.T., you don't make us feel good. We would rather go where the preacher makes us feel so good. I'll tell you now, when you stand before God, you won't be thankful for a minister who just made you feel good. You need to know, Judgment is coming. Jesus is coming again. And so Paul, when he gives this charge, he does it in the light of the coming judgment, and he says, preach the word. What does he mean by that? Well, he means the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might like to know, if you didn't know, my father named me after his favorite preacher, R.T. Williams. You know what RT stands for, don't you? Right theology. <laughs> Roy Tillman Williams was his name. My name is Robert Tillman. I was hoping all new babies would be born that, but I've given up on that. <laughs> RT Williams would say this to people he was ordaining. Preach the blood and preach 
the Holy Ghost. Those are his words. It's a reference to the blood Jesus shed on the cross and to make room for the Holy Spirit. Now, the word translated word is the Greek word logos. Now, there are two words in the Greek that are translated word. One is logos, one is rhema. Generally speaking, logos means holy scripture, rhema, a prophetic word. Now, you don't want to push the distinction too far because sometimes they can be used interchangeably. But generally speaking, Logos refers to Holy Scripture. And we're living in a time when people don't want Logos. They want something quick. Give me a word. A prophetic person. I've been around them. I know they can't walk across a hotel lobby without somebody coming up to them and saying, Give me a word. Have you got a word for me? It's like those who don't want to go to a nice restaurant. They want to go to Burger King or McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken because they want it now. I remember turning on the television and the preacher said, don't turn that dial. I've got a rhema word for you. I thought, oh my, rhema word. I don't want to miss this. What could it be? But we're living in a time when so many superficial Christians who, as Bobby Connor puts it, worship a God they barely know, always wanting a rhema word. Listen to me. It is no sign of spirituality that you want a rhema word. This is why people want read their astrology charts. This is why they go to a fortune teller. They want something now, and possibly if it will make them feel good. If you go chasing after a rhema word, you won't get it. Seek the Logos. Get to know this book so well. Once in a while, God will give you a rhema word. I know what it is to get a rhema word. I I thank God they can be life-changing. But chase after a rhema word, you'll never get it. This is the way to get to know the true God. And I would urge you, to know your Bibles well. Now, I don't know whether you have a Bible reading plan, but you need a plan that will take you through the Bible in a year. It means four chapters a day. You can go online and get a Bible reading plan. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones introduced me to Robert Murray McShane's Bible reading plan. And I can say to you, I've read the Bible through over 40 times. You need that. This is a way to get to know God. You see, what I have here is the Holy Spirit's greatest product. Do you want to be on good terms with the Holy Spirit? Get to know His Word. He has not changed His mind on what He wrote. We're living in a time when people don't want to endure this. They want something easy, quick, something that will make them feel better. Well, I can tell you, It was a stipulated charge, preach the word. And it means the word that will prepare people to stand before God. I will ask a question, not to the graduates because they've been vetted, they've heard me speak, but in case there are those here tonight, you've never had anybody ask you this, 
do you know for sure that if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Do you? Has anybody ever asked you that before? You know, it's the kindest question anybody can ask you. We had in Westminster Chapel what we called the pilot light ministry. For the last 20 years, I was out on the streets myself every Saturday. And I would stop people and say, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And you get all kinds of nasty words, words unprintable, words I couldn't repeat. But what they don't realize is the kindest question I can ask because it will prepare you for what is coming down the road. I'll ask you, do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Where will you be 100 years from now? The first time I met Yasser Arafat, that's what I put to him. I'd just been with him a few minutes. I didn't know it was going to be there nearly two hours. And because I thought it was just a 15-minute visit, I tried to get everything in as quickly as I could. And I said, Ra'is, what matters is not whether you or the Israelis get Jerusalem. Where will you be 100 years from now? Instead of throwing me out, he invited me back. I visited him five times. But where will you be 100 years from now? And then, if you stood before God, you will. And if he were to ask you, he could do. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Would you do me a favor? I want you to get your mind on this question. Forget about the person next to you. I want you to ask yourself the question. If this were the real thing, and I'm standing before the most holy God, and he says to me, why should I let you into my heaven? And you have to give the right answer, and there's only one answer. Give the wrong answer, you have to go to hell, not to heaven. And you, this is a serious thing. What would you say? Imagine this. Write down in your mind, on, say you had a sheet of paper in front of you. Write down on that sheet of paper what you would say. You need to think about it. What you would say to God. Why? Should he let you in? What comes to your mind? Remember, 10 minutes from now, what you're thinking now, what you would say to God. Let me tell you what I would say. I would say it in four words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. The Bible in a nutshell, as Martin Luther called it, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, that means not go to hell, but would have everlasting life, that means to go to heaven. And so when Jesus died on Good Friday, the blood that he shed, dripping from his hands, from his forehead because of the crown of thorns, that were pushed upon his brow, that blood satisfied God's justice.
The blood totally, completely satisfied God's justice. That is the most wonderful news in the world because if God were to say, R.T. Kendall, why should I let you into my heaven? I would say, I'm trusting the blood that your son shed on the cross. And that's the only hope I've got. And that's what Paul meant by preach the word. It was a solemn charge. It was a stipulated charge. It was a specific charge. It goes on to say, do the work of an evangelist. The Apostle Paul was essentially an evangelist. Theologian? Certainly. Missionary? Yes. Pastor? Yes. Evangelist. That was Paul. He was not just writing Romans and Galatians. If he had time on his hands, as he did in Athens, you found him in the marketplace talking to whoever might be there. Had somebody come into the vestry at Westminster Chapel one morning, and he said, Dr. Kendall, I believe I've been called to preach. I said, good. Join us Saturday morning with the pilot lights. On the steps, he said, oh, I, I don't mean that. I could not talk to one person, but I could speak to thousands. I said, my friend, if you're not able to speak to one person, you're not able to speak to thousands. I'd forgotten that I'd said it, but Bob George, who was a deacon at Westminster Chapel, used to remind me that just a few weeks after I became the minister there, I asked the members of Westminster Chapel this question, how many of you have never led a soul to Jesus Christ? And Mr. George, he said, I was, I was 60 years old. He said, I was staggered. He was brought up brethren. And he said, I've never led anybody to the Lord. I wonder you people that are going to be preachers. I don't want to embarrass you, put you on the spot, but have you ever led another soul to Jesus Christ? You need to think about that talking to anybody you run into, not waiting until you're in the pulpit as if this were a glamorous thing. But whoever you meet, just talk to them. Ask them what I just asked. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? If you stood before God and they, and God would ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? Say that. Get to know the word so that you can preach it to one other person. By the way, four years later, we started our pilot light ministry. Bob George was the first to join us on that Saturday morning, first Saturday of June, 1982. He was out every Saturday. You could always tell when Bob George had just led a person to Christ. He looked so happy. He looked like the cat that swallowed a canary. I said, you could tell, look at Mr. George, he just led somebody to the Lord. Look, I can tell you, the last time I saw him before he died in his 80s, 
I said, Mr. George, have you kept a record and how many you've led to the Lord? And he said, well, uh, yeah, I have. I said, how many? It was over 500. The cynic will say, how many were saved? Probably not all of them. Perhaps the majority weren't. But some were. One went into the Anglican ministry. I suppose you have to be saved to go into the Anglican ministry. To be able to talk to another person about Jesus will show your worth when you stand as I'm standing to talk to hundreds. Do the work of an evangelist and be so concerned about the destiny of the people you will speak to. I mentioned Robert Murray McShane a few minutes ago. I've made him popular in some areas just because of his Bible reading plan that Dr. Lloyd-Jones introduced to me. Robert Murray McShane died at the age of 29. He saw true revival break out in his church. Six months after he died, a minister came 50 miles to Dundee in Scotland to visit the church building. He just wanted to see where Robert Murray McShane spoke. And he found an elder in the church. And he went to the elder and says, could you talk to me a little bit about Robert Murray McShane? Well, what do you want to know? Well, how could I be like Robert Murray McShane? The elder says, come with me. He took this young minister to Robert Murray McShane's desk. And he says, sit at this desk, put your elbows on the table, and your head in your hands, and let the tears flow. Now come with me. He took the young minister to Robert Murray McShane's pulpit. Stand here. Put your elbows on the pulpit, your head in your hands, and let the tears flow. When Robert Murray McShane died, they found a letter in his pocket that somebody had written him a few days before he died. It was a man who said, I came to hear you preach, determined never to be converted by you. But he said, when you walked into the pulpit before you ever said a word, he said, I was saved when I saw your face. You see, the anointing of the Spirit is not in word only. It's in power. It's like with Stephen. When they saw him before the council, his face shone like an angel. Let the tears flow. And if you have that kind of passion for people, God will turn you into a Robert Murray McShane. 
Finally, there was a subsidiary charge. When Paul said to Timothy, be ready, instant, in season, and out of season. What does that mean? In season, out of season. Be persistent. Be prepared. Be instant. In season, out of season. Well, the best way I can put it is, there are times when you just feel the Lord's presence. When you read the Bible, and you just start reading, and the letters leap out at you like gold. And you just, you just don't want to put your Bible down. And God shows you things you've never seen before. When you pray, you just sense His presence. That's in season. Sometimes when I preach, it's easy. It's, it just flows. It's called the anointing. It's in season. But Paul says be prepared out of season. What's that? Well, those would be the times you don't feel like praying. Most people would say, well, I don't feel like praying today, so I won't. Or they'll say, if the Lord really wanted me to pray, I'd feel his presence. I don't, so I'm not going to pray. Don't be like that. Paul says be instant, be prepared, whether you feel like it or not. How much do you people pray? How much do you pray? If they were flashed on this screen, how much time you spent in your prayer life? I don't mean praying in the car, riding in the tube, on the bus, just alone with God. How much? I tried to get every member of Westminster Chapel to pray 30 minutes a day. Some did. The last few months I was in London, I was invited to address 100 ministers in London. They gave me 10 minutes to speak on prayer. I used the 10 minutes to urge every minister to give one hour a day. Martin Luther spent two hours a day in prayer, private prayer. John Wesley would not think of going out into his day without two hours on his knees. Where are the Luthers today? Where are the Wesleys? Do you want to make an impact on your generation? I'm preaching as if I would never have this opportunity before. We know how much time the average minister in Britain prays. We know. A poll was taken among thousands. They answered anonymously. All kinds of questions among them. How much time do you give God your quiet time? The average minister, clergyman, priest, vicar, rector, spends four minutes a day in prayer. And you're wondering why the church is powerless. In season, out of season. It's also a reference to your private life. Your private life. The same R.T. Williams that I was named after said two more things when he ordained people. He said, speaking to the men, he said, young men, beware of two things in your ministry. Money and women. If there's a scandal connected with either, God may forgive you, but the people won't. This means that each of you is required to be sexually pure. 
sexually pure. Not just outwardly, but in your private life. What if I were to reveal a secret to you? It's not a very well-kept secret, but it might be news to some of you. Do you know what is the most common sin of preachers? It's pornography. The most common sin of preachers is pornography. When the Southern Baptist Convention met, 25,000 in Los Angeles, all the hotels thought that the pornography channel would go down. It went up. And if it's possible that there's someone here, surely not among you, but if there would be just maybe someone here, you are addicted to pornography? Would you like a rhema word? Stop it! <laughs> Give it up. Don't taper off. Stop it. It will wreck you. Because your private life has got to be as genuine, pure gold as what people think of you publicly. Because that's where the anointing comes. It's not just having gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are without repentance. You don't have to be spiritual to get a gift. But to have this kind of anointing, Paul's final word, and I can tell you, do these things and you will be a good minister. We're not called to be great. We're called to be good. And if you and I are good ministers, that's good enough. By the way, Maybe I did it 15 minutes ago, not 10 minutes ago. But what did you write down in your mind? Answer to the question, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What did you write? What did you write? Can I lay, say lovingly to you that if you wrote anything other than trusting the death of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and shed his blood, if you wrote in your mind anything other than trusting his blood, trusting his death, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But that can all change. We can sort this out right now. Maybe you weren't expecting this at a graduation service, but remember, I'm pretending this to be the last time I ever speak. And I can go to the grave with this being my final word. If you gave the wrong answer, I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. If I can give you words and you can say them from your heart, repeat them. You don't need to say it out loud. Not necessary. God will see your heart. Are you ready? Say this to him, Lord Jesus, I need you, I want you, I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. 
As best as I know how, I give you my life.